You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. Paul Mills broke onto the national scene this past March when his Oral Roberts Golden Eagles knocked off the number two seed, Ohio State, in the opening round of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. ORU followed that with a victory over number seven seed, Florida, and everyone started following them as the only the second number 15 seed ever to reach the Sweet 16. Golden Eagles narrowly missed a berth in the Elite Eight when Max Asmus, three-pointer at the buzzer, caromed off the rim against number three seed Arkansas. Had it gone in, as it appeared it was going to do, ORU would have faced Mill's former employer and eventual national champion Baylor in the Elite Eight. Through the process, America fell in love with Mill's two stars, Asmus and, Ke- and Kevin O'Banner, who combined for more than half the NCAA tournament points for ORU. One of the more popular names in the hot stove league of coaching openings, Coach Mills joins us. Talk about ORU's magical run and his own amazing journey. Coach, welcome to Sports Connections. David, thanks for having me on. And just uh, for clarification purposes, I know Max's name is is not, if you ever learned Hooked on Phonics, uh, (laughs) that's not the way it works. The A-B-M-A-S is pronounced ace, uh, as in what you do in a maybe a tennis match or a volleyball match. So it's Acemus for all our listeners out there. Okay, and I knew it, the the B was was yeah. uh, was not there, so I, I I I got the hard part, missed the easy part. So no Ace-mas. worries, no worries. All right. I, I I called him by the wrong name for the first six months, <laughs> and I said, "How come you never corrected me?" And uh, he he's just he he's he's a very gentle spirit until you start to compete. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, now that we're a couple of months removed from the tournament, what's what is the first thing that sticks in your mind about that run that you guys had? Um, how do you lose a one possession game? Um, it keeps me up at night. Uh, you lose a, a chance to go to the Elite Eight. And you lose 72 to 70. I ended up getting a technical foul and it was my third one ever um, in, in my four years as a head coach. And so I mean, you think back over a lot of things. Could I have done this better? Could I have done that better? Um, could we have better taught this? Could we have better taught that? And so a, a lot of sleepless nights uh, when you lose a one-possession game in a Sweet 16 battle. But you won two one-possession games to get to that Sweet 16 battle, didn't you? Yeah, but but the reality is is losing losing is not the expectation. Winning is. Um, you know, when you go into a game, you you expect to win, uh, you plan to win, you prepared to win. So when you win, it's just that's par for the course. Uh, that was the expectation. Losing is not the expectation. Yeah, uh, I actually hate losing more than I like winning, and so uh, that losing when I win, I go. We expected to. Yeah. Uh, when, when we lose, uh, especially when it just it ends your season. Um, yeah. the, those are those are hard to 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 just really digest until we can actually practice again. Um, we only had about a couple of weeks until school ended, so our guys we never got back together. Uh, we needed them to do well academically and cross I's or cross T's and dot I's. And so May 24th, when we get them all back here, uh, we'll, I'll be raring to go. It's interesting, coach, you know, 
outside of your program, maybe outside of your coaching staff. I, I don't know how far that expectation to win carries within your program, but that's probably if, if it, even if it pervades your entire program, that's probably the limit. Not a lot of people, uh, except my wife, <laughs> who uh, picked Oral Roberts to beat Ohio State. Um, and, and she's notorious for picking the big upsets and then being out of the tournament by the start of the second weekend. But anyway, <laughs> not a lot of people had that expectation that you would beat Ohio State and then follow that up with the defeat of Florida. But you guys really did expect to win those games, didn't you? I, I think every coach expects to win those games. I think everybody walks into it going, we have a game plan. Um, we have the players. We, if we can do A, B, and C, uh, and not even perfectly, if we can just do A, B, and C, we're going to give ourselves a chance. I knew that we had talented players. Uh, I knew that, you know, we led the country in, in a number of different categories. So I knew of the 357 schools, there were things that we did better than anybody else yeah. um, in the country. And so, you know, the fact that somebody doesn't acknowledge that, um, I'm not surprised simply because I get that the Big Ten and the Big 12 and, and other conferences get more attention. Um, and so I that that never bothered me. But, you know, as I told the guys, you're going to play somebody good. Um, yeah. That's the nature of the NCAA tournament. So yeah, we're not exactly. getting away from playing anybody who isn't good. Uh, so you're going to play somebody good. But at the end of the day, we're not going to allow somebody to put a number by our name and tell us that that's our value or tell us that that's our worth. We understand that the committee had a job to do and they have to seed the teams accordingly, but you can take that number away from us and you can take the names off the front of the jerseys. At the end of the day, this was going to be 10 guys competing. We were going to have five and they were going to have five. And um, the five were going to change at different times throughout that 40-minute contest for us. In the opener, it was a 45-minute contest. Right. But we, we weren't going to capitulate because of the number of the, on the, your jersey or because you had a certain uh, or a name on your jersey or you had a number beside your name. So didn't really matter what anybody else yeah. thought. I just knew that the guys in that our locker room really believed in each other and we were anxious to to have a chance to go out and test our medal against really good programs. That's got to really make you feel good that your players bought into it that much. I mean, it sounds really good in theory, coach. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's just I mean, just for them to go out there and expect to be a team at the top of the Big Ten or, uh, you know, a, a team that's, you know, always in the in the mix in the Southeastern Conference. And, you know, that's got to really make you feel like you're doing what you set out to do when your players buy into it that much. I, I agree with you 100 percent, Dave. It, it, it sounds really good in theory. Um, you know, I think somebody wrote a book uh, called – the 12 lessons of life. And I remember thinking like 12 lessons of life, who, who can narrow life down to 12? That may <laughs> sound good in theory, yeah, yeah. but I, I, I never read the book, never picked it up. I don't even know who the author is, but I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, like, that's not practical. And so all this stuff sounds really good. Anybody can talk about this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so at the end of the day, though, to one of the things we talk about quite a bit around here is winning within. Um, you have to win on the inside. 
before you can ever exhibit it externally. So if something has to be internal. Well, how do you know if anything's happening internal? You don't. Yeah. Like, I mean, you can't observe that. Uh, yeah. And there's no way to quantify that. There's no way to really put, hey, yeah, they do. It has to be exhibited externally. And so, uh, and so all of this stuff does, it sounds great uh, to talk about, but at the end of the day, it has to be exhibited. It has to be shown. And that's what I appreciate about our guys is they really believed in themselves and they believed in each other. And so when that gets exhibited externally, you realize that somebody does have something internally to them. And it's not always going to work out, right? Just because you have something internally doesn't mean that it's always going to show. But I do believe that over the course of time, that that what you're going to see is a lot less of these, what what I would call hiccups. Um, you will see a lot less of this going on in life, the roller coaster ride, because you realize that um, faithfulness over the course of time is going to lend itself um, to some pretty good situations. And, and so if, if we go out and find that book, we're not going to see a blurb on the back, a quote from Coach Paul Mills, I don't believe in this. I don't think I, don't yeah, I, know who wrote this book. I, I didn't endorse it. I'm sure there's, <laughs> there's probably about 900 of these self-help books yeah, or yeah. whatever books. And I've, you know, when I was younger, I was always amazed, like, man, they've got it down to these 10 things or these 15 <laughs> things. And then as you live life, you just realize what a bunch of baloney that stuff is. And, uh, and, and there are no really parameters you can stick um, around it. Um, I, I, I was looking through the Oscars, I think were a week ago, and they had a list of like who's won Oscars for the past 80 years. And I've not seen the movie, but one of them a few years ago was was called The Shape of Water. And uh, and and I think about that with life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you we can't put it in this little box and say this is the way it fits. Life is probably more like the shape of water uh, <laughs> or whatever that. Looks yeah. Like. But, you know, I, you, you mentioned that you can't really measure what's in the heart, what's internal. When did you recognize that this particular team had the opportunity to be as special uh, as it was? Yeah, well, obviously, being at a, at a Christian school, we talk about a number of things that um, are in Scripture, are in the Bible. And, and one of them that we talk about quite a bit is 1 John 3.18, and it says, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So let's just not say we love each other. Let's just not say we love basketball. Uh, let's just not use our, our, our mouth just to utter words. Let's actually exhibit um, that we want to honor our teammates. We want to honor each other by giving our best. Um, let, let, let's honor each other by being really honest. And so for us, um, we were in a situation where we had just lost a game at North Dakota State. Now, mind you, I don't think we had won there in more than nine years, um, maybe beyond that. And and we had a team meeting, and the guys were really honest um, about things, not only that that we needed to do, but also by the same token – what 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 does truth actually look like? Um, how how do we speak honestly with one another without without being rude or without being sensitive? And I thought they were really transparent. 
And I remember looking at that as this was all coming about going, man, this is a real team. Um, the fact that they want to honor each other, not only with their actions, but that they want to have an ability to be honest with one another. And, and as, as we tell our guys constantly, genuine love is not going to enable the bad behavior. Um, genuine love isn't going to let you drive 90 miles an hour towards the edge of a cliff and say, oh, but a friend isn't going to say anything. Uh, genuine love is not going to allow that bad behavior. And so you're going to confront it um, and you're going to deal with it. And I thought we were able to confront and deal with real issues um, at the time. And, and I thought from that perspective, I, I said to myself, like, we're dealing with a, a group of young men who really care about and love each other. And this is going beyond just words. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you're, you know, America fell in love with Max and, and Kevin. And obviously you have a team. You don't have just have the two guys, but talk about what those two guys meant to your team, not just the scoring. Obviously that was a big part of it, but just talk about what they meant to your team this year. Yeah. I mean, one, they are two of our hardest workers. We, we have two guys who put a ton of time into the gym. We use the Muhammad Ali quote quite a bit around here that I, uh, I run in the dark so I can dance in the lights. And, and, and so there's a lot that goes on behind closed doors that sure. people never see. And those guys are first in the gym. You know, I've told the story about we ask our guys to make 20,000 shots when they first show up to campus in the fall in August, and we give them about six weeks to do it. And it equates to about, you need to make about 500 shots a day. Wow. Well, Kevin O'Banner did it in six days. Um, he was making <laughs> about 3,500 shots a day. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I just realized like, man, a guy who's going to put in that much time and that much work and, and you realize just his love for the game his love to get better. He had a real hunger um, to use the most of his abilities and to get the most out of it. But I mean, of our 15 players, 13 of the 15 did that and not in the six days over the course of six weeks. Right. But, right. Um, I just realized that we had a group of guys um, and there, there were no threats. It's voluntary on their part. Um, we just ask them to do it. And uh, if you really are serious about being good, um, you'll put in the time and you'll put in the work. And so from that perspective, those two led the way. Kevin was first, Max was second. But if you were to walk in on a game day, um, there will be two guys here, uh, let's say at 7 p.m. There will be two guys here at 9 a.m. Um, one of them will be on one end and the other on the other end. And they'll be in there full sweat getting up shots. And one of them's name is Max Asmus, and the other one's name is Kevin O'Banner. And, and they lead by example. Um, and, and so from that context, they do way more than just make shots or, or do those type of things. They set an example uh, for everybody else, and that's what leaders do. It, you know, you, we talked about your expectation was to go actually farther than, than you did, but your expectation was to win. But, but the story of ORU basketball going as far as it ever has being the second number 15 seed ever to, to make the sweet 16. Your own story is almost as remarkable. And I read this uh, on your website, on the ORU website. You grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood as the son of a preacher, and you were the last white player your high school coach ever coached. 
first of all, why did your dad choose to pastor a church in that area? Well, one, I think that when the church was originally built um, in, in, in 15 years before we ever got there, before my dad took over, um, that that wasn't the attention. But if you're familiar with the term white flight, uh, people started getting out of inner city and they started moving out to suburbia. And so when my dad took over the church where they had what was called the parsonage, um, the house that the pastor of the church lived in, white flight had occurred. And so now we were in a neighborhood uh, where we were the minority and, and, and being a white family. And so I, I couldn't imagine um, doing anything else. I mean, obviously at the time there was no desire to, yeah, I think all pastors are probably poor. The vast majority of them, <laughs> all of them aren't. Uh, Joel Osteen or, right. or name the pastor sometimes that you see on TV. In the South, there's a church on every corner. And so the vast majority of these pastors are bivocational. And those who are, that's their only vocation, probably don't have much money. It's a calling upon their life. And so for my dad, he was committed to it. Um, he was committed to sharing the gospel. Um, he had gone to Vietnam, had fought in the Vietnam War, and so he saw death up close, and he realized how important eternity was to so many souls that were out there. And so he he was called to, to preach the gospel, and so he did that, and so pastors are poor, so we lived in a neighborhood that was poor. And uh, I, I couldn't imagine it, it, the, the opportunity from not only a demographic standpoint, but from a socioeconomic standpoint, um, you just learn so many valuable lessons over the course of time that, that I can't imagine my life ever going without. And, and the value of it to me is, is not even measurable. And I will come back to the calling uh, in just a few minutes, but um, I want to talk about the, the, your, your growing up and how that shaped you for your role as a head coach with a, a mixture of races. You've got a lot of black players. You may have some Hispanic players, even Asian players. How did, how did you growing up as the minority help you when you've got a mixture uh, of races on your team? Yeah, I went to a predominantly black school. And so, um, so, so what happened was, was they would have these little cutouts of this is the basketball team and they'd be posted in everybody's room. And so I kind of stuck out uh, <laughs> amongst the team photo. Yeah. And so, you know, when I would walk down the hallway, people would recognize me uh, mainly because when they walked into whatever class, ninth grade through 12th, uh, the basketball photo was, was on there uh, to, in, in some capacity. And so I was kind of the obvious person. And so it kind of made my identity as, as, as a player at a predominantly black school um, was well known. Uh, and, and I was known because of my race uh, and because my photo was there. But where, where it really helped me was being in the locker room every day and being on the bus and, and just navigating this world to where um, we weren't very different despite our races. We had the same love of the game of basketball. We had the same competitive spirit, uh, the laughing and the joking, all of those things that occur in locker rooms that just bring chemistry and camaraderie together. 
I just realized the value of, of people putting their arm around me, competing together, all fighting for the same thing uh, a, a, as a unit. And, and you just grow. I would go to their house. They would come to my house, my teammates, and before games, after games, weekends, spend the night. And I just think all of those things allowed me to be exposed to so many different situations. We were all in the same socioeconomic situation. Uh, we were all poor. Uh, and, and so from that context, it was great. But I think there was a diversity that I got to experience that very few people ever get the opportunity to. And it obviously shaped me a great deal in, in, in just how to better understand um, socioeconomic situations as they relate to myself and to my teammates during that particular time period. You, you said that you kind of stuck out in the team photo because you're the only white guy on the team. You also stuck out on the team photo in basketball because you're short. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no yeah. disrespect, but um, you, you still got to play college basketball. And I understand you got injured, breaking your back, diving yeah. for a loose ball. How traumatic was, was that to end your career with, with such a difficult injury? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was telling somebody that they read a quote from a high school coach was, I knew he would be a coach. That's because my high school coach knew I wasn't going to be a player. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, but was good enough to, to get a division two scholarship, uh, loved it. Um, actually had an opportunity to go division one, but uh, decided to go the division two route because I thought I could play immediately. And that's what every kid wants is you yeah. want the opportunity to play. And, and I was kind of your tenacious guy. I was, I, I just, my mindset when I walked into a gym was I was going to be the toughest guy in this gym. Nobody was going to be tougher than me. So if that ball was ever loose, uh, I was going to find a way to get it. And one day at practice, um, at dough for a loose ball, we had concrete steps, had concrete bleachers that, that you kind of walked up and dough for a loose ball. And, and jumped and cracked the bottom uh, spine, um, my bottom vertebrae on my spine, and knew it immediately that something was wrong because I couldn't walk and, and had to be carried somewhere eventually, um, wheelchair and, and ushered into a doctor. And basically they said, hey, your career's over. And I just remember being there in tears because my identity at the time was I was going to make the NBA. It wasn't really a question of if, um, it was just when. When was I going to sign my million dollar contract? And so <laughs> everybody has these dreams as a kid and yeah. especially as a teenager, especially young males. Um, you can't tell us much when you're 18. You have every solution, every problem in the world. And, and so at 18, to have that reality hit me uh, because you were just thinking so differently um, it was pretty crushing for me. And, and it, that was my identity. I was known as the guy who played basketball. And, uh, and so to have that taken away from me was, was pretty gutting. How did you, how did you overcome that? Yeah, well, I, I, I realized you're just hanging around the game. You're really depressed. Um, I, I decided that since I couldn't play basketball anymore, I'll transfer closer to home. So I went to Texas A&M um, and, and just kind of moped around and, you know, didn't I realize that my identity wasn't in basketball. But what, what I realized was when I would go home um, during December, during the Christmas holidays, 
is that I wanted to help other guys who were in socioeconomic situations as me. I saw what basketball did for me, how it allowed me to travel and have different experiences and get an education. And, uh, and, and I wanted other guys in my neighborhood who I knew were talented to have that same experience. So what I realized was my gift wasn't playing. My gift was helping. And I wanted to help as many kids who were in the same situation as me as possible and, uh, and just navigate a certain world that they may be unaware of, not only from uh, a, a obstacle standpoint, like these are the obstacles that you're going to have to overcome, but also from an opportunity standpoint. I wanted them to realize, man, this is way beyond our little neighborhood game. Right. Like if you can get good at this, there are opportunities out there that exist. And my high school coach obviously chose it as an occupation. Um, and, and we as players, we thought it could get us an education, but I realized that it could do so much more. Yeah. And so I tried to begin to hone those skills and just, hey, my gift isn't playing. That's the reality of my situation. But my gift is helping and really had a heart for it in, in order to help people who were of similar situations as me. I think you just answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I read that you took a pay cut three different times in your career for a job change to, to pursue coaching basketball. Why were you willing to do that? Well, one, I wanted to do it all the time. And so when I originally started coaching, I was, I was bivocational um, and probably not even bivocational because my, my corporate job paid me, my basketball job didn't. And so I would work a corporate job and then run across town and coach. Uh, I get off at four and I coach from five to eight and then go back to the corporate job. And after doing that for three years, I just said, man, you know what? I want to do this all the time. Yeah. Like I, I want to do this 24 hours a day, be around the players, help them. I want to live in a gym. I want to do it all the time. And uh, I remember it, it was probably around a $60,000 pay cut. Um, it was actually more than that. And my wife said, are you sure? Uh, <laughs> Wives have a tendency to yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I went to teaching calculus and pre-calculus, but I, I got to be at a gym uh, for the other. If, if I wasn't in those six classes of five pre-cal, one calculus, um, if I weren't in those six classes, the, the rest of my time I could spend it in the gym on the weekends and so forth. And so I was a head basketball coach and loved it. And uh, took that job. I, th- I, I think I went from twelve thousand. Took a job at Rice University, making two thousand. And so I'm just. My wife was like, "Is this how this works? Like, <laughs> going backwards?" And, uh, and, and and so then the opportunity ended up at Baylor. The opportunity to present it itself to be a head coach. And again, I, I think you just wanted to. Man, I, I believe I'm ready to to lead my own program. I believe I'm ready in order to assist kids and and do it someplace at, at different. I think I've learned a lot here, but I'm ready to move on. And so all of those situations were never financial decisions. They yeah. were, you know what, um, I, I'm uh, I I want to go help guys, and I want to invest and in, in pour myself into these players. And the, the I, I I wouldn't tell anybody here at ORU, but the reality is is you don't even have to pay me. Um, I, I, I would do it for free. Um, if I could just eat, if y'all could let me eat, I'd do it. But, um, it, it's such a love of mine just to help these guys and their families. 
And you mentioned it earlier regarding your dad and the pastors are called to, to minister. I believe that all coaches share two things. One is the call to coach. If you are called to coach, you have to coach no matter what your vocation is. And the other thing is the same first name. Yeah. You know, your, your players don't call you Paul. They don't call you yeah. Mr. Miller. They call you coach. Um, just talk about your calling to be a coach. Sure. A, a, a coach is we think of it in terms of a stage coach, right? Um, we, we think of it as, as we're going to get you from one place to another. Um, and that's what a coach does. We're, we're going to take you from here and we're going to get there. Um, and it's going to be rough along the way. Uh, there will be some smooth paths, but for, for the most part, if you've ever been in a stagecoach, um, I, I, I've not been in one. I've just seen them on the Wells Fargo logo. <laughs> um, but, but I can't imagine they're very smooth rides. Uh, yeah. It has a lot to do with the path. And so from that context, I wanted to help kids. I wanted to help their families. Let's go from here. And how do we get to there? And so I, I would tell you that uh, James Naismith, the inventor of basketball, uh, has a seminary degree, was also a doctor. Um, he, he, he said, I believe that, that I can help more people uh, through the game than, than, I, than, than I could in the pulpit. And, and so my dad being a minister, I watched him help people from the pulpit and then individually. Yeah. I just said, you know what? I can, I can help people um, more by being on their turf. And, and, and Billy Graham, I heard one time say that a coach will impact more people in, in a year than most people do in their life. And so for me, this is my ministry. I knew coaches didn't make much money. Um, I saw I I'd already navigated how to live poor watching my dad be a pastor. So uh, the money was never an issue to me. It never yeah. really cared about it. I just wanted to help guys uh, and, and I wanted them to have the same experiences that I had, but I wanted it to go beyond that. Hey, it got me out of my neighborhood. I mean, the reality is, is, is you have one of two ways when you were kind of growing up, you could go the wrong way or the right way. And the wrong way was selling drugs and, and going down that path. And those opportunities were presented to me, but I wanted to show kids that we could do this the right way. And, uh, and, and maybe not through sports necessarily, maybe through other opportunities that these people could pursue. But the guys who wanted to do it through the game of basketball, I really wanted to help those guys as best as possible. So 100%, um, it, it, it is a calling and a passion of mine to do this day in and day out. You, you got to coach with Scott Drew at Baylor for 15 years. First of all, how rewarding was it for you to see Baylor win the national championship. Yes. Yeah, Scott asked me to come and I told him, he asked me to come to the final four. And I said, you know what, win the final four game and I'll come to the national championship. And so, um, uh, went to the national championship. I sat there with some former staff members, Matt Driscoll's the head coach at North Florida. He's the all time winningest coach there. And then Grant McCaslin is the head coach at North Texas. And they had an upset win over Purdue uh, as a 13 seed over right. a four. And, and so sitting with those guys and we had, we had invested a great deal of time. Um, those guys were each there. Coach Driscoll there for six years, so I was with him for six, and and, and then Grant was there for five years, so I uh, was with him for five, and, and, and so I just cried. Um, I mean, it wasn't just weeping, but I mean, there were, my eyes were flooded with tears oh, yeah. 
because I was so happy for Scott and, and for Jerome Tang, who's the associate head coach. So I was with those guys every day uh, during my tenure there. And so I was just so happy for them because you just watched. They were really committed to doing it uh, the right way, honoring each other, and to watch that day in and day out, and then watch it come to a culmination of a national championship and confetti falling. Uh, you just knew all the work that had been put in place all those years. So I, I was so excited for those guys. One of the books that I've written, I've, I've published 22, but one of them was on the turnaround at Kansas State under Bill Snyder. Okay. And called, called it the greatest turnaround in college football history. And there's a lot of comparison between what Coach Snyder did at Kansas State, where you know, he had a huge mountain to climb to get to ground zero. And, and the same thing was true at Baylor with, with Scott that, you know, the program in disarray on and off the court, he had a long way to go to get to level ground with everybody else. It, it's just, it, I, I, you know, Scott's a friend of mine. I'm so proud of what he has done and he's always done it the right way. One of the things I remember was one year at big 12 media day, we all knew as, as members of the media that if he got the phone call that his wife was going into labor, it didn't matter where in the program, Yeah, you know, <laughs> he, he would, you know, if he was supposed to be up on the podium next, he was leaving. And I remember seeing him walk out the door in a hurry thing. He got the call. He yeah. did things. He had his priorities in order and he always did things the right way. So I was really, I was, I'm friends with Mark few. I felt bad for Mark, but I felt really, really good for, uh, for Scott. So let me ask you this. If you had, if, if Max had made that shot, how hard would it have been to coach <laughs> against Scott in the elite eight? Yeah, it wouldn't have been that hard one because if this isn't uh, Paul Mills competing against Scott Drew, you know, it, it was uh, your players were competing against Baylor players. I, I, I know several of those Baylor guys, uh, because I, I, I recruited um, during that time. So the, some of those guys I was very familiar with. But I, I'm four years removed uh, from, from that situation. But uh, it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been that difficult. The great thing about Scott is, you know, during my time with him, is he would be like, hey, you guys, y'all are over there with Coach Mills. Um, you other guys are over here with me. And so, you know, as an assistant coach, you wanted to prove like, okay, uh, yeah. watch, we're going to beat you. Uh, <laughs> and so you were already used to it. You know, he, he would, yeah. Hey, this group is with coach Mills. Um, we're six minutes on the clock. We're going to play a six minute game. And you wanted to prove, um, that listen, I'm cut out for this too. Now you're not the only one around here. And so from that perspective, it had been fine. Uh, obviously they were really good. I think Arkansas was the only team to play them to a single digit game. Um, during the course of the six games that they played in the tournament. So uh, so from that perspective, I said, well, we would have lost by 11. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, hey, I, 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 I take solace in that, um, but I sure would have liked the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, just talk about the atmosphere at ORU, not just around basketball, but the atmosphere at ORU. There was a story, I think it was Washington Post, where – some some writer said that NCAA should ban you from the NCAA tournament because you guys take a moral stand and take a religious stand and all the separation of church and state, which to me is kind of bogus. The Constitution doesn't say 
you, you know, you can't have religion. It just says the, the government shall not establish a national religion. Right. And, and obviously, I think that created a good opportunity for you guys to talk about what ORU stands for. But just talk about the atmosphere at ORU and why, why you fit there. Yeah, one, it's a Christian institution. I come from Baylor, which was a Christian institution. Um, it's in the South. Um, and, and so obviously I have a number of ties to Texas. If you look at our roster, uh, we have six Texans and then uh, six non-Americans. Um, and so we're, we're either in Texas or we're in Europe. Um, and, and, and so our, we, we've got hands um, in, in those different areas. It was very similar to what we did at Baylor. So from that context, all those areas fit. Um, what, what, what we talk about quite a bit around here is, is our care factor. Um, I'm a big believer in if, if you're going to be good at something, you're probably going to be good at, at it because it's important to you because you really care about it. We've developed care into an acronym. Um, the care stands for Christ. The C stands for Christ. We need to put Christ first. And then that needs to be reflected in our attitude and then our relentless effort. So the A, the R, and the E. And so I say all of that to say, I thought I could be myself. I didn't feel like I had to be phony. Didn't feel like I needed to be bashful about acknowledging God. Didn't feel that I needed to be ashamed or cautious about acknowledging Christ. Because I talk about care factor a lot. I talked about it quite a bit at Baylor and and uh, hey, are we going to play this guy? Or are we going to play that guy? What do you think, Coach Mills? And and I would say, listen, David's care factor is higher than so and so. So I, I think we should play David because it's it's important to him. He's going to do the right thing. And so for for me, I didn't feel that I ever had to be somebody that I wasn't. I could authentically and genuinely be myself. And, and I could talk about things that I was not only comfortable about talking about, but I thought were necessary to talk about. I think it's important that we have priorities in order. And I didn't want to just be at a situation where, hey, you can only talk about tactical issues if you're coaching basketball, because I realize just how much that is going to miss the point of actually addressing what we need to address. So from that context, uh, the job here, when it, when it first came open, Matt Drew school from North Florida called me and he says, you'd be perfect. You have to get that job. Um, and, and, and so it, it was, it was a really comfortable environment that where the Christian mission of a school in the South that allowed me to be who I authentically am and attempt to be every day. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a no brainer for me. Now, I'm not going to ask you to predict the future. There are other positions out there. There are other opportunities where you are, where you would be allowed. I'm not saying that right. Where, where your personality and your, your faith base would allow you um, to, to, I'm not asking the question. There are, there are other opportunities besides Oral Roberts and Baylor where you could be a Christian coach. Yeah. So do you see yourself staying at ORU for a long time or do you see I yourself do. moving up? Yeah, I, I see myself being here a long time. You know, um, obviously, uh, when the facts change, you change um, and, and you'd be stubborn, obviously. Hey, uh, the facts on on vaccines have changed. I, I've watched people um, 
I'm not taking it. And then they get the facts and then they change. Right. And so people, people obviously change over the course of time. I really admire the, the Dabo Sweeney's of the world at Clemson. Right. Um, I, I admire the Tony Bennett's at Virginia yeah. um, who, who are able to, to live out their faith in a really competitive environment at non-Christian schools. And so I, I'm not saying that you you can only be a Christian at, at Christian schools. There are people who do it really well in in sports. Uh, Mark Few is a yeah. uh, is the son of a pastor, right. and then often I've, I've mentioned to Mark several times. I think we're the only two in the profession uh, who've kind of grown up. Uh, dads are pastors, and we kind of understand. Um, now he's at a Christian school and a Jesuit school, and and so there are people who who do this, but. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much um, I enjoy being at ORU, getting the opportunity to coach the kids that we coach, and at the same time, be true about a mission here of let's use our God-given abilities for God-given reasons. Yeah, I, I would say maybe you're, you are the only two whose dads were vocational pastors, but I, I know Homer drew fairly well. Yeah. Scott yeah. grew up in a pastor's home. His church happened to be the basketball court. Uh, just, just like yours did. 100% um, true. Okay. Now I read that you have the entire script of Hoosiers memorized because you've watched it more than a thousand times. Why is that film so impactful for you? Yeah, I, I would tell you that um, it, it kind of gives this idea that I just sit around and stare at a screen. <laughs> Man, this poor guy, he's just wasted that much of his life. So before every game, what happens is, is, is on my computer screen. I play it, you know, usually about three or four hours uh, before. And, and I, it's just been on the background over the course of my 25 years uh, through some capacity back in the day, it was VCR tapes yeah. on the TV. <laughs> and then it would change to iPhones and iPads and computer screens. And so it's not as if I'm just sitting there, right. but I had right. watched it so much, um, especially that, I can, I memorize the lines. Uh, I'd seen it so much. And yeah. I usually Michael Jordan um, falls asleep every night to a Clint Eastwood movie. I'd fall asleep to the Hoosiers movie. Um, and so there, there are a number of things. One, it, it they do incorporate faith in basketball, um, which I, I, I enjoy Gene Hackman uh, as they're praying for Ollie to go to the state championship game out of a guy named Strap. Uh, and, and, and he says, he's praying for Ollie to make these free throws. And, and he says, Hey, make it a good one strap. Um, and so there's this misnomer that you can yeah. just pray your way into victories. I've always enjoyed that uh, yeah. from an element. I love how Gene Hackman, um, playing Norman Dell refuses to give in to scrimmaging until those guys get in shape. Um, and, and one of the players says, it feels like we are, we're in an army. And he says, you are in an army every day uh, with me from two to four. You're in my army. And, and, and so I love that he's uncompromising. He does this with Jimmy Chitwood. He tells Jimmy, I want what's in your best interest. I don't care if you play on the team or not. Um, like I can't tell you how many coaches would manipulate kids or just say things yeah. so that they could benefit. And so there's a number of lessons that, that are in play in that movie sure. that I think make really good coaching. Um, but, but you watch a team come together and obviously the story of Milan in, in, in 1954 to win the state championship is pretty incredible. Yeah. And it, and it does mirror what you guys, and I, I keep going back to the fact that only your program believed 
that you would beat Ohio State and Florida and are upset that you didn't beat Arkansas. The fact that you guys did what you did is kind of a Hoosiers, a Hoosiers like moment. Um, I appreciate your time, coach. I want to wrap up and I always try and give people the opportunity to do this. Two questions. First of all, tell us about your family. Um, married to my wife will go, we'll be married for 24 years this coming August. And we have two wonderful daughters, one 15, one 13. So um, we have one who is on the verge of driving. So oh those are, uh, yeah, those are enjoyable experiences sitting in the passenger seat. Uh, <laughs> and then my 13 year old is, is, um, she enjoys volleyball. I've, I've tried to keep both of them away from basketball, uh, just cause I realized that, uh, uh, that's a different kind of sport. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I didn't want them to ever feel obligated to ever right. do anything. And so they pursued their own interests. Love them both. Uh, couldn't do this profession without them. Uh, and, and they're extremely supportive. I can tell you that nobody cried more, um, than my 13 year old, uh, after we lost that game to Arkansas. And, and, and so the, their families are extremely invested and, and so many coaches have, have to have such wonderful wives to manage so many things that go on behind the scenes uh, in order to make our lives being able to do what we do. And I'm, I'm extremely grateful for my wife, Wendy, and feel extremely privileged uh, to be the dad of Audrey and Abby. All right. And then the final question I like to let people wrap up with, and you can, you can answer this. However, the question strikes you, what is your legacy? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I've actually um, been asked this in previous years, right? That they would just bring it up and something for you to think about. Yeah. And, and and casting crowns has a song uh, of, of, Hey, it, it needs to be about Jesus Christ. There's a passage in Isaiah where God says, I do not share my glory. And so I find, especially with young men or even older people, the futility in trying to acknowledge yourself or to think that you're really something special. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I've been to Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. I've been to his house um, that he grew up in. And I was just always admired. Um, what he did through the civil rights movement. If, if because of my background, if I wouldn't have been a coach, I, I would have attempted to be a civil rights lawyer and, sure. and to help marginalize people um, to bring justice in those situations. But I say all of that to say, as much as I admire Dr. King, there aren't two people who gather every Sunday to celebrate Dr. King and how great he was. And he was great did a number of really good causes, but right. nobody's sitting around saying, let's gather and celebrate the greatness of Dr. King. Greatness is reserved for one person and it's Jesus Christ. Going back to the passage in Isaiah, he doesn't share glory. Glory was only given to Jesus Christ. And so I think it's such a futile attempt to try to create your own legacy or to try to have your own fame that if we're not pointing towards this person named Jesus, 120 million people gather every Sunday in America to celebrate one name. And, and I think that I want my legacy as, as John, um, the gospel writer said, Hey, he must increase. I must decrease. Um, John the Baptist said that like y'all are bringing way too much attention to me. Um, he must increase and I must decrease. And, and so that's what I want my legacy to be. 
that I could point people towards Jesus, whether it be in my family or in the game of using the game of basketball, that you could channel people in the right direction so that they understand the eternal impact that decisions have on our lives and not only on our lives, on our legacy. And, and that song is going to be running through my head for the rest of the day. I know, I know the song you're talking about and I love it. Well, coach only Jesus. Yeah. That's right. Uh, I, I appreciate your time very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to be with you. Um, got another team to root for. I'm a Kansas state uh, alum. And so I root for Bruce Weber, who's also a believer and, uh, and I root for his teams, but I, I now will be a, a golden Eagles fan as well. So thank you very much for joining us, David. Thank you. It was an honor. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.